Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read anytime, Quipster.net. That's where to go, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to take a look at the link to my other podcast called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I look at more recent movies that are out in theaters, VOD, streaming services, what have you. You can find the link to that at my website, Quipster.net. Today, we're going to be starting the first of a three-part series. This time, we're going to be doing films from the 1980s that feature malevolent goop. Some sort of slime, some sort of blob, some sort of gunk that is bad for humans to be exposed to in one form or fashion. Spinning off of John Carpenter's remake of a film from the 1950s called The Thing... This episode will be spinning off from a film remaking something from the 1950s, another horror movie, called The Blob. The Blob remake came out in 1988. It is an R-rated take. It does have sexual references, gore, violence, and language. The runtime is an hour and 35 minutes. Kevin Dillon, Shawnee Smith, and Donovan Leach are the main players. Jeffrey DeMunn, Candy Clark, Joe Seneca, Del Close... Paul McCrane, Art LaFleur, and Ricky Paul Golden fill out the rest of the cast. Chuck Russell is the director. He also co-writes the screenplay with Frank Darabont. Now, back in 1985, Chuck Russell, he had been working in the industry, mostly in low-budget affairs, for some time. He had worked as an assistant director for several projects for Roger Corman. He also served as a producer for several low-budget films in the early 1980s, and he decided that the next logical step in his career after he received a writing credit for Dreamscape back in 1984, was to find a project of his own, one that he could write and direct. He had a number of original ideas, but any attempts to gain the interest of studios or investors in those ideas had fallen flat, so he was frustrated by his lack of progress. Russell decided he was going to take a new tactic. He decided that if he could find an older film, maybe a classic film, one that might benefit from a new and improved 1980s remake, that might be something that would draw the attention of a studio that was willing to give him a chance with this project. While he was channel surfing one night, Russell caught the tail end of this cult B-movie classic from 1958 called The Blob, something he had seen when he was younger. It's loved by fans of 1950s kitsch and of Steve McQueen, who made his first starring appearance in a feature with The Blob. This was a forgotten classic with continued name recognition over the years. It had the potential to make a fun film if he could give it a modern spin. Russell's update, he felt, would make people afraid. He would make a fast-moving blob, a really believably scary monster, instead of what it was back in the 1950s, which was basically a partially inflated weather balloon that was covered in silicone gel, and it was manually guided through this film through clever but very outdated techniques. A producer friend of his named Rupert Harvey, he told him he'd never get the rights, but Russell felt he might as well try. Now, after Russell found out performing a copyright search that the rights holder was the producer, Jack H. Harris, he arranged a visit to Harris's home in Bel Air. In the past, Harris had heard from quite a few others who approached him with ideas for a remake of The Blob. The CBS network pitched an ongoing series, in fact, where The Blob would be the protagonist, taking down bad guys every week, if you can believe that. 
the only continuation that Harris had approved was one that was based on a story that he wrote himself, a comedic 1972 made-for-TV sequel called Beware the Blob, also known on video sometimes as Son of Blob. That was directed by actor Larry Hagman, of course, of Dallas and I Dream of Genie fame. Russell pledged to Harris that he would take the blob seriously with his remake. His blob would be fast-moving, would be a primal force of evil. People would be afraid of his blob. He would connect with modern audiences through updated effects technology, characters that they can root for. He didn't have the money to buy the rights from Harris, but Harris did believe in his pitch and in Russell. He offered the remake rights for $1 in exchange for an executive producer role to sell the concept to a studio. Now, Russell at that time was in a writing partnership with Frank Darabont. A lot of people know who Frank Darabont is today, of course, a writer, director of The Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile and producer of such things as The Walking Dead and quite a few other notable intellectual properties. Russell and Darabont, they had met back in 1981. They were working on the film called Hell Night. That was a Linda Blair starring flick that Russell was the executive producer for, and Darabont was working there as a a production aide. Their arrangement for writing involved one person writing, then that person, when he was done, handed it to the other to rewrite, and they would go back and forth until they were both satisfied with the result. Now, Russell and Darabont had fun writing the script for the blob. They made concerted efforts to add a lot of humor without making it campy or mocking the original blob. They would try to throw some curveballs in this very simple premise. They wanted to keep audiences off balance. They wanted to leave the blob feeling like a genuine threat. So they wanted the film also to have an R rating to bring more of an edge for genre fans. And they also wanted it to be humorous without playing for intentional camp they emphasizing excitement and suspense instead of just overall jokiness. In the original, the blob was really slow, so slow that you really could easily escape it unless you tripped. Russell wanted to have a blob that was so fast, so sneaky, that there was no way for somebody to escape it unless they find out what its vulnerability is, which comes into play in the movie. Now, they knew that they would not find somebody as cool as Steve McQueen to star in their film, but they decided to take a novel approach to avoid unfavorable comparisons by whoever took the Steve McQueen role. They set up their protagonist, presumably the Steve McQueen replacement, to become one of the Blob's very first victims in the film, much in the vein of Marion Crane and Hitchcock's Psycho. Then they would make the would-be female love interest for that character a kick-ass action hero by the end of the film, instead of a helpless victim. And they would also make the town's biggest juvenile delinquent the reluctant savior for this town that deplores him. Now, the plot of the film involved the blob suddenly appearing after crash landing in a rural area outside of this fictional ski resort town of Arborville, California. It attaches itself to the hand of this vagrant that happens to be nearby, and that's when star high school wide receiver Paul Taylor and his cheerleader crush Make Penny, they're out on their first date in that area too. And they come across this man and they take him to the hospital along with the town's juvenile delinquent, Brian Flagg, who they think must be responsible. And they soon discovered that this blob has eaten the man alive and is growing even larger. As it heads to town, the blob is revealed to be some sort of runaway bioweapon experiment invented by the U.S. military and secret government operatives quarantine the town. They want the blob back alive. The town's residents are expendable, so it's really up to the teens 
to save the day with nobody to rely on. Unfortunately, their attempt to sell the blob fared little different than Russell's other efforts. Studios would not fund the kind of budget that they thought would be needed to bring the blob back to life with this inexperienced director, unproven writers in charge. But Russell and Darabont's luck changed somewhat when they pitched this idea to New Line Cinema. Now, New Line turned down the blob. They didn't really want to make it. But they liked the writing that they saw in the script enough to hire these two to revise the Wes Craven and Bruce Wagner script that they had for A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors. But they had to do it in a very fast order because they wanted to get into production very quickly. Although it was a rush job they didn't really seek to do, New Line liked their effort and also offered Russell the director's chair, and that gave him the break he needed. Dream Warriors was a big success. It made more money than the first two Elm Street movies combined, and it gave Russell clout. And that and the success of another 1950s horror remake in David Cronenberg's The Fly in 1986, that secured the interest eventually of producers Elliot Castor and Andrew Blay, whose Palisades Entertainment Group, a company that they had recently formed that had acquired a controlling interest in cinema group pictures, they would produce The Blob. Cinema Group Pictures supplied a budget of $15 million, the biggest budgeted film that they had made to date, while TriStar Pictures agreed to distribute. Rupert Harvey, the one who naysayed the Blob project as being sellable, he would come in and act as line producer. Now, Donovan Leach presumably is going to be the star of this film, at least that's what you think at the beginning of the movie, Donovan Leach. He was the son of a 60s pop star named Donovan. He also happened to be the brother of Ioni Sky. He gets set up as Paul Taylor, presumably the person that we're supposed to root on. However, he never makes it out of the first act because in this move to shock audiences into uncertainty on how the rest of the film is going to play out with the less likely characters, the school sweetheart and the town ne'er-do-well, they get to play heroes by the end. And Russell really wanted to choose these alternate heroes to show that the potential for heroism is within all of us. It's really born out of dire circumstances than just movie star good looks. Matt Dillon's younger brother Kevin plays Brian Flagg, the rebellious teen with a, a trademark heavy metal mullet. Russell cast Dillon over another top consideration that he had at the time, Richard Grieco, as the antihero because Dillon looked more like the real-life person that he had based the character on, this high school classmate that was always getting into trouble. Shawnee Smith, the female protagonist in this film, a lot of people may know her today as the recurring actress in the Saw franchise. She plays Meg Penny, beating out Terry Hatcher for the role. Russell gave her the part because she had the most spunk during her auditions, and she thought that she would be the most believable going from the school beauty to the badass female warrior at the end. Plus, Dylan and Smith gave more of the hometown feel to their characters compared to the more Hollywood looks of Greco and Hatcher. Now, Russell also cast in a supporting role Del Close as Reverend Meeker after seeing him as Alderman in The Untouchables. Russell didn't know at that time when he cast Close that Close was a bit of a blob royalty. Close not only appeared in that 1972 blob sequel, but he also was the high school sweetheart of Anita Corso also known for playing Helen Crump on the Andy Griffith show back in the 1960s, and who happened to be the co-star of the original Blob back in 1958. Now, a little bit of trivia here. The movie within a movie in the 1988 version of The Blob is called The Garden Tool Massacre. Corso happened to appear in the inspiration for that movie within a movie. She appeared in 1978's The Toolbox Murders. 
Close, who happened to be writing comic books, he also was a stand-up comedian and an improv teacher, he wrote a story about The Blob in a very recent issue of DC Comics Wasteland, so he thought this must be a good omen to be asked to appear in this film, so he took it. Palisades, California Incorporated, they decided to choose the financially struggling town of Abbeville, Louisiana, over prospects that they were scouting in California and Georgia and Mississippi. And Abbeville had the right look. The townspeople and local government were willing to give them full cooperation to film there. Local craftspeople were hired to help work on the sets. Some of the local theater group called the Abbey Players played extras in the film, the town residents who were frightened by the blob amongst them. Parents of Abbeville High School students filled the stands for the football game at the beginning of the film, dubbed the Blob Bowl by the production, as well as the school's cheerleaders, and they were competing against those of nearby Vermilion Catholic High School. To study how blobs in nature move and they digest their food, Russell watched a number of videos on everything from amoebas to jellyfish. Russell said his inspiration for the blob's actions was not the creature an alien or the thing, but from a Portuguese man of war, complete with the ability to lash out with gelatinous tentacles. Russell says that the fear of being destroyed by this force beyond your control, such as nuclear annihilation or toxic pollution, that's a universal fear. The blob is one such force, but this one is more tangible and localized. So the characters have to figure out how to deal with that menace directly. It's cathartic to watch these people come together to overcome a looming catastrophe right in front of their eyes. Russell also happened to know that the use of computer graphics was imminent in films. He had hoped when he started this venture that the blob could be one of the first to really benefit from the technology to wow audiences with something that they'd never seen before. Unfortunately, CG was not quite ready at the time, and that caused him to have to scramble to find alternate solutions from a variety of sources to make things happen. Heavily storyboarded scenes were needed to give the effects crew time to craft their blobs and configure their movements well ahead of their needed use. There were also a few production snags on top of this. The production was plagued by a series of injuries to the stuntman and the crew that caused unexpected delays. The production supervisor, Gordon Wolf, he was fired in the middle of the shoot for budget and schedule issues. The visual effects were originally headed by Lyle Conway, who did effects for Ghostbusters and Little Shop of Horrors, but he was dismissed when principal photography completed. Conway had only wanted to work with a lot of full-scale puppetry effects like he did with Audrey II in Little Shop of Horrors. However, the kinks were not really able to get worked out, and the blob was too heavy to make it workable. It weighed, depending on the size of the model that they were working with at the time, up to 400 pounds, and that resulted in very costly delays. So they decided to do a lot of the effects work, usually reserved for after principal shooting, much earlier while they were doing the shoot, with no ability to rehearse, especially as they were fragmented to locations on opposite sides of the country. Some of the effects crew were working in Louisiana, some in California, and that really strained the effects crew's ability to produce quality effects. Conway, when he left, was replaced by Industrial Light and Magic's Stuart Ziff, who specialized in the ghost effects for Ghostbusters. The weight issues were really an issue for the puppeteers, so Ziff's team decided to utilize mechanics and air bladders to try to help manipulate the blob and his appendages in a realistic way. 
Camera tricks like using variable speeds and sometimes reverse playback were necessary to mask the artifice of the blob's movements. The flies Hoyt Yateman, as well as the folks at DreamQuest, which worked with Russell on Dream Warriors as well as Back to School, which Russell produced, they provided a lot of the blob's miniatures, including a replica of Abbeville, to perform things that the full-scale blobs really couldn't do. The shiny and reflective look of the blob also made matte shots and blue screen effects nearly impossible in many situations. It was just too reflective, so they resorted to rudimentary front projection techniques to try to get by. The blob-related issues unfortunately pushed the intended July 4th release date of the blob into early August of 1988. Now as for the all-important makeup for this film, Tony Gardner came in to do that. He specialized in the dissolving bodies that are seen in the film, the skin burns on some of the characters. He was only 23 years old at the time that he started here. He did lie about his age. He said he was 25 in case they didn't want to trust somebody who was younger with a half million dollar makeup budget and a a 33-person blob shop crew. Silk bags of various sizes were filled with a substance called methicil, which is short for methyl cellulose, this plant-based thickening agent that is used in foods like gravy and milkshakes. Those were used to make the blob's shape. Gardner described the blob concept like it was a stomach that was turned inside out. It would use its acidic properties to break down human bodies and then feed itself to grow larger and even redder by ingesting their blood. Gardner's idea was to make the kills less bloody, but that was overrode by Russell. He thought that the dissolving should be really bloodier, so they compromised. They would make it bloody in the beginning, but as the blob gets larger and redder, by dissolving more characters, it would be less bloody. The victims, at least the makeup jobs that they were doing with these victim dummies and whatnot, were nicknamed Puddle People. For the effect where Candy Clark's character is stuck in a phone booth and sees the sheriff, they built an aquarium around the phone booth and a sheriff puppet was controlled by puppeteers in wetsuits so that the inside of the blob would seem like liquid motion. The top-down shot of the interior of the phone booth was used with a miniature booth about three feet tall with a two feet tall doll representing Clark within it because it was soon to be flooded by the viscous blob all of a sudden using fast motion recording techniques. Now, one thing people have done with the original film, as they have done with a lot of 1950s horror and sci-fi, is to read a lot of significance into the fears of the time. Because at that time, the blob was red, perhaps being an allegory to the deadly invasion of communism, the fears of communism in America. It was also made back in the 1950s by a Christian film company, and they also employed a part-time minister named Erwin Yeworth to direct And that led some to see a lot of religious parallels of retribution against the sinful society of adulterers and other immoral people in the town at the time. Some have taken that allegorical quality and tried to apply it to the 1988 film. Also thinking of it as a cynical allegory, they pushed forward a lot of theories that this new film was somehow about the danger of marrying military with science or the deadliness of germ warfare or even the insidious nature of the religious right. This was like an anti-religious film. And that's partially because, I guess, Reverend Bleeker is kind of a bad character in this film. The more prevalent metaphor above all of these, though, is that this was about the AIDS epidemic. Some people saw AIDS through the prism of a conspiracy theory that the government created the disease to infect a certain type or types of people with the blob, the metaphor, which is why the priest is keen to get a hold of it. 
it seems to attack men and boys primarily in this film, or those who are in the midst of engaging in promiscuous sexual activity. A scene of the teens trying to buy condoms further adds to that notion, so to speak. Uh, trivia, by the way, in real life during the 1960s, a high school friend of Chuck Russell's went to buy prophylactics and later that night met the date's father, who was the clerk at the pharmacy that sold it to him, and that became kind of a, a story that he utilized for a big joke reveal in The Blob. Now, Russell has insisted that endorsing such theories about what The Blob is about is not necessarily what he was aiming for. He suggests that his blob was more like a metaphor for how faceless corporations take over and devour smaller communities like the one in Arborville, California. He also felt a need to put in themes of questioning of authority, especially government and how they seek to take over with martial law whenever a tragedy strikes. The, the Brian Flagg character is there as somebody who's skeptical about all authority figures, from the cops to the priest. Sometimes he feels it's better to trust yourself and take care of things on your own instead of expecting those with more money and power to make decisions for you because they might actually be manipulating you for their own evil purposes. Now, I'll say one asset of The Blob, at least in 1988 version, is it has a, a pretty good sense of humor. There's a very comical vibe that's very welcome, given that there's really not a, a compelling villain or one that we can readily follow and understand. It's just a killing force. It's not enough to make up for a lack of overall suspense, but it does keep the proceedings very entertaining. It's also about as tacky as the original. The effects work goes for more graphic and gory kills, though, as we watch people's carcasses dissolve within the ooze right before our eyes. The visual effects here are, are much more improved, of course, over the original. Enough for the blob to be able to sprout gelatinous tentacles to grab nearby victims and move very quickly. The film also features a few callbacks to scenes that were in the original film. You had the opening meteor shot, the, the homeless man's encounter with the blob, the, the blob taking over a theater, this hospital sequence, as well as an establishment of cold being the blob's vulnerability. It also features a scene involving a sink drain that nods to a similar one in the comedic 1972 sequel. However, Russell did not really aim to make an homage to the original so much as to make it fresh and frightening for viewers likely too young to have ever seen the original. Now, the MPAA did find a few things that were a little too graphic. They had to be toned down, mostly on how long that shots linger on a graphic moment of gore, like somebody dissolving within the body of the blob. Joe Seneca's much more graphic death was trimmed down so that it was not really easy to tell what was going on. There was also a scene involving the blob consuming a squirrel that was also removed. And despite getting some early decent reviews, as well as encouraging pre-release buzz from test audiences, Unfortunately, The Blob really proved to be a bit of a disaster at the box office. It debuted at a low number eight against movies that had been out for multiple weeks. Russell says TriStar saw The Blob kind of like an independent feature in the best and worst of ways. In the best in that they didn't interfere much with Russell's decisions, but they also shortchanged it in terms of its marketing and distribution. They saw it as kind of a limited appeal movie, even though they spent about $20 million on that, which is pretty sizable for a movie of this type. It only made, unfortunately, $8 million at the box office. Nevertheless, like a lot of films like this, the film did eventually garner a small but growing and very fervent following over the years among audiences who enjoyed this very light but gory horror flick that played with genre tropes. There are other films that subsequently have come out like that, that feel a little bit more self-referential and playful that came out in the 80s and 90s. 
Now, although Frank Darabont has gone on, obviously, to make bigger and better things, he does remark today about what a great country he lives in where he got to write such nonsense as The Blob. Chuck Russell, he immediately had regrets about the movie because of the lack of success and the challenges of the visual effects, but in subsequent years, especially more recently, he has come to firmly embrace The Blob as he recognized the cult following for the film grew, and he now considers it one of his best efforts. Now, as far as what I think, well, I think that this is a movie that will catch people who like this kind of movie, so that's generally what I would give a three-star rating to, a movie that I could recommend for genre lovers primarily. If you're not somebody who likes horror movies, especially jokey ones that are a little bit more playful and not necessarily scary, I would say this is not a movie I would recommend to you, but if you happen to like those jokey, gory, not taking it too seriously, but just trying to have fun with the genre, I think that you're going to get the mileage that you're looking for out of The Blob, enough to give it three stars out of four. Now, The Blob went through kind of a dormant phase, even though it sets up for a sequel. It was not successful enough to make a sequel, but it didn't stop other people from eventually looking into doing another remake at some point. Back in 2004, Scott Rudin and Paramount Pictures, they looked at bringing another Blob remake two movie theaters. They hired Chad and Carrie Hayes to write the script. It was more of a pure comedy in their hands, and the blob was actually an acronym for Biological Lethal Organic Bomb. However, Rudin eventually left Paramount to Disney, and the project rights lapsed. In 2009, Rob Zombie announced plans for another remake of the 1958 film. This one he was going to make was decidedly darker and gorier and scarier, with these blob zombies that can somehow morph into each other. However, as he started working with it, he began to have second thoughts, and in 2010, he walked away from the project. Fast forward a few years, 2015, Simon West, he was interested in doing another remake of The Blob for Goldcrest International. Samuel L. Jackson, he was slated to star in this film, but... The Blob here would be a subterranean monster unleashed by miners, but somehow it went into development hell and we haven't really heard about what happened to that ever since. So will we ever see The Blob come to the big screen again? Well, it looks like there are a lot of different people who are looking to do it. Whether or not they finally do remains to be seen. So keep on the lookout if you're a fan of The Blob. Anyway, if you have your own thoughts about The Blob that you want to impart to me, you can find my contact information at my website, that's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. You can also find links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page. Any of those ways are adequate to get in touch with me. Email, I think, is the best way to do it if you're going to do it. As far as what I'm going to be covering next week, well, I'm going to go into another film. I went through the thing. I went through the blob. And so now I'm going to go into another viscous, disgusting substance that is found somewhere on Earth. It is called The Stuff. It definitely is much more of a comedic, maybe satirical take on this concept. Kind of a spoof on commercialism and consumerism. From 1985, directed by Larry Cohen, starring Michael Moriarty. I definitely recommend checking this very weird film out if you haven't done so already for the next episode. The Stuff from 1985. And until next time, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. 